Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Here we are again, the committee of learned sages. <laughs> so much better than book club. <laughs> As opposed to ignorant sages. It's uh, it's another one of our book review podcasts, book discussion podcasts. Uh, the Armstrong and Getty and Friends Book Club. Um, with uh, the two of us and uh, Craig Gottwalls, attorney at law and uh, and thinker and benefits expert, and Tim Sandifer from the Goldwater Foundation. I don't have your title in front of me, Tim. I apologize. Vice President for Litigation. Woo. Oh, boy. <laughs> Be- before we get to today's book, I want to mention at the beginning of this, if you've not heard our uh, podcast on socialism on the book Heaven on Earth, Never been a better time with the topic of socialism in the news every day and probably up to the presidential election of what it is and what it isn't. So, And if, you you're, if you're scrolling back in your podcast feed, it was late, late August, and Jack entitled it, Lenin is a piece of shit. There you go. Yes, yeah. because he was. <laughs> yeah, not safe for work unless, you know, there's a lot of shit at your work. So here we go. <laughs> this, uh, I, Joe Getty, chose the book Tribe by Sebastian Younger. The subtitle is On Homecoming and Belonging. Um, it is... It, it is not a big, thick, scholarly book. It It is somewhat wow, scholarly. I read a book by Sebastian Cabot. I was really... <laughs> <laughs> wow, now there's... Wow, if you're under 50, Google it. <laughs> and I listen to music from Sebastian Bach, so I... I just watched The Little Mermaid. <laughs> well, I, I happen to be a guy who thinks a lot about the dislocation uh, and and the disconnection of modern society. And it, it bothers me and it troubles me and I worry about my kids and that sort of thing. And I've been thinking about that for a long time and I came across this book by a guy I already liked and admired. If you don't know Sebastian Younger, he wrote uh, the, the Perfect Storm, right? 
which inflicted that uh, that cliche on <laughs> the English language. Yeah, and it, a great book about the Boston Strangler, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. He also, with Tim Hetherington, produced uh, the documentary Restrepo about um, Marines in uh, the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan. And I would say, similar to The Perfect Storm in that that book and then movie made that a, that a, a phrase or a words that people use over the all the time so is this tribe book there's mm-hmm. been so much discussion of us being tribal in our politics and everything since this book came out it really had an effect right and it it really had an effect on me too in a really fundamental way because and it's a couple of books at once his inspiration was he spent a hell of a lot of time with uh, fighting men and women the united states armed forces yeah, he was embedded in afghanistan if i right. recall correctly yeah exactly yeah. and um and he maintained relationships with them as they came back home and either adjusted or failed to adjust. And it was his his personal pain and grief at witnessing some of the difficulties of this that that motivated him to look into the question of belonging and and how societies embrace and don't embrace warriors, but just how societies don't how societies embrace individuals as well, just humans, how humans relate to each other, which is a hell of a topic. Right, right. Uh, so, and, and I don't want to dominate it because uh, the discussion, because I'm kind of passionate uh, about this book, um, but maybe the best place to start is where he starts talking about how in the colonial and uh, the pre-we-were-a-country time, and actually in the early U.S. history, there would be, there were thousands and thousands of English people who defected to the Indian tribes. Yeah, this is fascinating. Right. They maybe they were captured and elected to stay or maybe they just wandered into the woods and tried it. Thousands and thousands, men, women and children and virtually zero natives willingly did the same thing. So European settlers would end up joining the tribes and not leave, not want to leave. Sometimes if there was a trade made. They would sneak away from Boston and go back to the Indian tribe. Right, and and Ben Franklin was fascinated by this in particular. And um, what was it about the life of living with the tribes that they found better, more meaningful, whatever? Uh, Tim, what did you think of that section? Well, I'll tell you, I, 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 I'm trying to think of how to approach this discussion because I disliked this book so intensely Yes. That I have tried Conflict. to people I've love tri- that they do, and I've tried to come at this with what can I get out of this book, putting aside for a moment my disagreements. But the number, the very first disagreement I ran into was just this issue because Younger is trying to argue that the reason why settlers preferred to live with the Indians than vice versa is because they had the the Indian culture at the time had this sense of communitarianism. I mean, this is a book. This book is an advocacy of communitarianism, and just where I'm coming from, I am a very intense individualist my number one political value is individualism and whenever people talk about community and belonging and stuff i always get a little nervous because although there is validity to that it always worries me that they're going to smuggle in some anti-individualist concept so here you're talking about this issue and, and and younger says well the reason why settlers preferred to live with the tribes is because they were more communitarian and they had this sense of belonging and people really like that i think it was exactly the reverse of that i think the reason why people who came over from europe found themselves happier living with indians was because they were getting away from the more communitarian oppressive society of puritanism and colonial america where everybody was constantly up in each other's business right 
And here they find tribes where they're free to do the, their own thing and not have to wear corsets all the time. You know, I, it seems to me that that Younger takes this this data as proof of his thesis when, in fact, it, it disproves his thesis. And I really was bothered by that right away. Well, and, you know, that that was and that's part of the reason I asked. This is the part of the book that I had the most trouble with because he romanticizes he does the 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 indian existence even though every time he catches himself romanticizing it he brings up horrific torture and, right, and yeah. disease and starvation and near constant warfare and the one thing i kept thinking was well these people really didn't get a chance to sample that lifestyle and make an intelligent choice um, yep. And so it's difficult to understand what may have motivated them. Could have just been the food. Maybe it was just the food. Maybe the food was just that much better. Right. Well, I suspect there was some truth to that. I mean, when you look at the, the medical practices or the, the habits of bathing among Europeans of that time, I'm sure that, it, you know, the story goes that when Captain Cook's men arrived in the Hawaiian Islands, the Hawaiians were astonished by how badly the ships stank. They could smell them out at sea because the Europeans didn't bathe. So I'm sure there was some degree to which the Indian culture was healthier but they aired their junk out it's absolutely (laughs) true it's absolutely true that he romanticizes them and and romanticizes them repeatedly throughout the book now romanticizing indians is a is a long-standing american tradition it's one of our culture's deepest traditions but it needs to be called on and he does it throughout one of the uh, toward the end of the book he's he goes back to this issue and he's talking about an apache tribal member that he knew who had volunteered for the vietnam war and stuff and he talks about how this fellow pra- was so into his culture that he practiced the sun dance. Well, the sun dance is not an Apache tribal custom. That's a Lakota tribal custom. And, and the reason why it was adopted in the 20th century by members of other tribes was in part as a function of American romanticism about what life was like among the Indians. So now this book is not I about anthropology. Elizabeth Warren do it in, uh, in New Hampshire. Yeah, this book is not an anthropology book, but it is still, I think, a a telling weakness of the book, the way he romanticizes and ignores the the realities of American Indian tribal culture. On the other hand, and gosh, I'm torn between offering what I hope to be an intelligent response or just going after your motives and trying to portray (laughs) you as a bad person. He's got Bernie on the mind is the the problem. (laughs) In the style of the day. But the one part I found powerful about that, because the book again was primarily motivated by the idea of of uh, of uh, warriors reintegrating into peaceful civilian right. society was that I think the Indian tribes and the Israelis and and other people do a hell of a lot better job of it than we do um, in the U.S. But why? Younger, I think what Younger ultimately concludes is that the reason why is because those societies are constantly at war. And therefore, it's a good thing for our culture to be constantly on a war footing mentally because that makes it easier for soldiers to reintegrate themselves into society. Now, it's true. No, no, no. I I disagree. No, it's, it's true that during World War One, he points out during World War One, a lot of soldiers were astonished when they would come home and find that nobody seemed to care that the war was going on. And that seems to be the case today, too. And that I can absolutely see why that'd be alienating. But when he's arguing that, well, the reason why it, these other cultures do it better is because the people are always constantly aware that there's a war and they always they feel themselves part of the bo- war and everything. It seems like he's saying as long as you perpetuate a crisis mentality among the people, then those who are engaged firsthand in the 
the crisis will find it easier to reintegrate themselves into society. Well, maybe that's true, but it, should we live our lives in a constant crisis mentality? Well, no. you're a paranoiac, and I think you hate America. Oh, damn, I slipped. <laughs> slip. No, I was just going to say, I think his point is that what can we adopt? What can we learn from the the methods, the, the interactions that they use to help warriors reintegrate in society without being on a constant war footing? But he it's says, not required. But he says here, quote, the battlefield was an extension of society and vice versa, end quote. He says that that is the, the key to why these other societies do it better than we do. Well, we don't want our society to be an extension of the battlefield. That's a horrible idea. We, and we don't want vice versa either. We want to have a, a civilian society where people can pursue happiness is what we want. I, yeah, I, I think what's going on here is is he's he's just picking sort of one anecdote, not one anecdote. He's picking one example of how people can feel more fulfilled and enriched. And it's really it's really just one example of the global principle we've talked about here on the show before. And that's that um, good times create soft people, soft people create bad times and bad times create hard people, strong people. So when, when you go off to war, you necessarily create strong people and you you thereby, like Tim just pointed out, are going to correct some of the the ills that they might be feeling. And then when they come back, they're, they're quite often coming back into a, quote, soft, easy society, and they're going to then feel the ills associated with that. Which I'm sure is, I, I can only imagine, I've never served in the military, I can only imagine that must have been, it must be an extremely difficult thing to face. Right. Now, I guess my objection to your objection, Your Honor, is that um, it's, uh, I, I almost felt like you were arguing that I can learn nothing about um training from an Olympic athlete just because I'm a, a, a fat suburban slug. Um, to me, those societies that were forced to get really good at helping people not go nuts um, can teach us something. Yeah. And I think if if I, I that's how I try to approach the book also is to say, well, let's put aside this question of whether he's actually arguing in favor of a battlefield being the extension of society and vice versa. And and is he he talking about something that's uh, that's a real problem? I think absolutely. And does he make some value valuable observations in that regard? Yes. One of them is I I really enjoyed his talking about uh, evolutionary psychology when he talks about the different tendencies and toward violence between men and women. And uh, you know he talks about the how men are vastly more likely to come to the rescue of another person than women are. And gender's a construct. Tim. I, yeah, right. And, and I was glad that he didn't fall for that nonsense. I thought that oh. was great. But and I agree with him. Of course, he says that that one of the big problems in our society is that we predicate our identity on exclusion or inclusion in groups. I absolutely that's a problem. But his I, it seems to me that his solution is more belonging. And I I'm not persuaded that i think that i think what we really need is a stronger buttressing for individual strength and valuing and celebrating people as individuals not the idea that we should subsume our individualism within some larger group well he also makes the uses the statistics though and i i liked this because i come up from rural middle of nowhere part of the world he makes the point that people who live in uh rural less populated er areas have less, you know, anxiety, mental illnesses of a variety of kinds from people that live stacked on top of each other in urban areas. Yeah, but a dead man has no anxieties either. Is it necessarily a good thing? I mean, the, if a person it lives in some rural community where he has few anxieties, 
what what conclusion do we draw from that? Maybe the reason he has few anxieties is because he lives a much duller, less interesting life, and and he would wow. much per, and he would prefer. I, I will to, not. I will not believe that for a second. Well, well, it certainly is true of at least one person out there in the world who well, lives well, in a yeah, in a boring community and wants to have a more a fuller life. So if we were to encounter that one person and say, "Well, aren't you lucky that you that you live in?" in some obscure town and you don't have any chance of realizing your dreams, but at least you don't have any anxieties. Wow. What, a, what a cruel thing that would be to say, right? Yeah, I just don't think that exists, really. I mean, maybe one person, but that's not what life is like. I, I, uh, I just, I want to say, I, the first time I went through this book was three years ago, and I really, I really kind of fell in love with it. And the second time I went through this book, of course, was the last couple months, and I went through it with a different eye. I went through it a little bit more skeptically. And my takeaway is that... He, he, he came out. He being younger came out of Afghanistan, and he basically wanted to scream this message. And that message was, "Wow, um, PTSD in the modern world are so bad. But when you go and do something really, really hard with a group of loved ones, that overcomes all of it, and it almost like cures the modern world's ailments. Mm -hmm. And then when you take that person and throw them back into the modern world, modern world, it's a gigantic mess again. And I think." So I think he kind of he came out of that experience with just this epiphany of like our modern world is so screwed up from what we are hereditary and, and historically should be that it's making us all sick and evil. And I think when you take that broader look at it, I think it's very true and accurate. And I just think he tends to use war and tragedy, whether it be like 9-11 or whatever or, or like hurricanes. Mm -hmm. I think he just uses those as examples without kind of reaching the broader picture. And that's that that life is more about meaning and hard work and 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 doing something significant than it is about suffering for yes. example. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with that. I think the, what what is true about his message is that people need reason, purpose and self-esteem in their lives and they and different people find those in different ways. He sees those in very dramatic examples yes. in cases like Bosnia or Kosovo, the examples he uses. Right. And one could very easily conclude that what he's arguing is that we all ought to live in war-torn societies, because then at least we'll have a feeling of belonging and, and well, fellowship with our fellow human beings, which is crazy. That's the problem with the book, Tim. But I think it's almost like if the book were twice as long, and he took the he took the time to go through and do these other examples of where you could find meaning and enrichment and cutting out social media in your life, yeah, you'd right. get to the same place. It's, well, totally it's almost agree. like we're reading a summary of what his real argument is. I've got to ask you though, Tim. He he uses the example of towns that were wiped out by tornadoes, and everybody pulled together and looked out for each other, and they got to know each other and it was the favorite time of their lives do you think younger is advocating constant tornadoes well it would seem to, it, it, as ridiculous as that is it no, would but, seem to fit his thesis he would he seems to be arguing for this it's steeped in this nostalgia and this rose-tinted glasses look at the past at how civilization was because everybody got together and knew so, each other and cared and i don't first of all buy any of that for to begin with and secondly the the conclusion one draws from that is that if belonging and a sense of community is a good thing then we ought to live in disaster all the time because then we'd all feel better and more belonging. That's crazy. No, well, and I just think that's the problem. I think the problem is the only examples he uses are war and disaster. Yeah. It would be so much more well-rounded if he used raising a child with disabilities or forming your own group or club or running so, your own company, running your own company, employing people. If he used other examples of struggle, face-to-face -face tribal living that just don't necessarily revolve around war or disaster. And then, and then addressed 
the self-sufficient individual who is happy with his life, not belonging to some group, but because he pursues his own vision and makes something beautiful that he believes in, possibly against the will of his entire tribe, because he holds true to the truth that he believes in. I think those are the real heroes in our society, and they're the people who are left out in the cold by an over-focus on tribalism and belonging. In other words, who is running Dear Galt? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, seriously, there's, there are, this is, the problem is, as I said at the beginning, my, my primary value is the individual. And I think about the, the, the one person who gets left out and, and who is, has a vision of a better world that other people ignore or deride. And then when he says, boy, I feel lonesome, his, the response he gets is, well, you should, you should belong to a tribe. No, you should build a, a, a life that you believe in and stand for what you believe in. And if people agree with you and, and value you, they'll come to you and you'll build a community that you feel valued in. I, that's what I think is the right answer. You know, and it, I, I absolutely love this uh, this discussion and argument. Um, on the other hand, I'm an iconoclast and a loner, Tim, and you make me look like the prom queen. <laughs> that may be true, but you would you would be as unhappy, Joe, as I am if we were to take up group sleeping. Honestly, honestly, Sebastian Younger in this book argues in favor of group sleeping, that the idea of kids sleeping in their own rooms and then growing up and sleeping alone, that that's a bad thing in our society and that grown adults feel happier when they sleep in groups as they're forced to do on well, the battlefield. his argument is anthropological that you know we're, we're just a few generations from when we used to do that and we haven't adjusted well i'm happy sleeping with either by myself or with those i choose to sleep with thank you very much <laughs> i want to be in a room with eight dudes we should have we should have done this entire podcast from one bed together <laughs> and we could have tested it out like we're the monkeys or something how do you know how does the listener know that we're not you just blew the illusion yeah so that's right I'm, you can claim anything i'm trying to make this all fit with the uh with the with the with the author's argument and your uh disagreement with it uh there tim so getting back to the whole rural thing so he talks about people in small towns and their sense of uh yeah. tribe or community apparently comes from living in that town i guess right is the most thing but there's no doubt when when you're from rural America like I'm in the Midwest, the idea of therapists and medication for your mental problems oh, yeah. is just non-existent. It just <laughs> yeah. it doesn't exist. Everybody's fine, and you look at the, you watch TV and the people who live in big cities and uh, the 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 classic like soap opera woman who's having a glass of. Uh, with scotch there in the middle of the day and seeing the therapist and stuff like that, that just doesn't exist. I totally agree. And here's what I was thinking about that is And that, by the way, getting back to the uh, the rural thing, those are the most because I've lived it, the most individualistic people you're gonna exactly, come across. They exactly. want to be left the, the freak alone. Exactly. That's exactly what I was gonna say. We're I think what younger thinks of as communitarianism in this idyllic utopian Midwest small town thing. No, what he's looking at is communities of strong individuals who, yes, they join teams and they come together because they share values and whatnot that's perfectly fine individuals obviously do do that they join teams but they don't think of themselves as a collective or anything so it, in fact and the same thing with the indian tribes indian tribes in reality outside not the disney romanticized fantasy of collectivism in reality indian tribes are well known for being hyper individualistic a, tri a tribal chief couldn't order people to do things people followed him if they agreed with him this was 
sometimes a problem for tribes because you had multiple chiefs competing against each other. Warriors in the Lakota Wars were well known for individual combat. They, they had a hard time strategizing as a, as a battalion or something like that because they were so individualistic. So it's the individualist ethos that is healthy about these small town communities, and that's why people come together on mutually shared well, values. Well, once again, I wish Elizabeth Warren was here to weigh in on this. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, but Tim, if if somebody catches a bad break in rural America, small town America, his neighbors are there to help him, and it gives them both joy. And then me leave right. me the fuck alone after that. Well, and right. I, <laughs> and and I, I think the reason for that is because I think helping other people or wanting to share your happiness comes as a, as a consequence of a self healthy self-image. I think a person feels generous toward others in a healthy sense as an overflowing of self-esteem. It's an it's unhealthy when a person says, my self-value comes from my service to others and the fact that I help others proves that I'm a healthy human being. No, it's that you are a healthy human being first and that makes you want to share joy with hmm. other people. And I think that's what you encounter in these in the, the communities that Younger is talking about. And, and I, I think that explains why the, the key that I thought was right about this book is the sense of purpose, the need for a feeling that you're doing something that really matters in the world. And absolutely, that is essential to, to being a happy and, com- and, and contributing person in your society. I just, I just think he was so excited about what he experienced and witnessed, he wanted to write about it. But if, if, if you were writing this book again today in light of the depression epidemic and the anxiety epidemic we see in the modern world— you would just tweak the thesis of it a little bit to be exactly that, Tim. You would it would it would be tweaked more to be purpose is is meaning and doing hard things. And you know what? We all need other people in our lives to one degree or another. Some of us need a lot more community than others. And right. it, that's a variable that's a variable solution. But th- well, that's absolutely true, though. I think yeah. uh, you know, I, I will just say different people need different levels of connectedness. Exactly. And yeah. and you will see the book through that lens. And yeah. through your own lens. And a lot of the way I view the book now differently is, is and I think the same as for Joe, too, is, is, is raising kids over the last five years in social media world, in depression world, in anxiety world, and kind of seeing how some of my kids can deal with social media just fine and be completely individualistic and just have a little bit of contact face-to-face with humans and be totally fine. Others of my kids melt down in that situation. That's interesting. But it's yeah. not its not that because they're not fighting a war, it's because they're just not getting enough one-to-one human meaningful interaction. Well, you, you, Joe and Jack, you both have friends and family members who are currently in the military or, or were yes. at least recently in the military. My yeah. brother just, um, just retired with a disability because uh, he can't hear anymore. Yeah. from being in the military. but So I, I sort of suspect that you guys see something a lot more in this book than I do since, I mean, I have a few friends who are in the military, but nothing, nowhere as deep as you do. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's absolutely true. But then the book's about several different things simultaneously. And the one that really got to me and the one that I found most convincing was not, you know, and sometimes Tim and I love you. I, I really do. I have so much respect for you. But your your communitarianism argument seemed a little lawyerly in that we all need to one degree or another community. And I think the modern world is ill-suited to provide it because it's so easy. It's the easiest thing to be isolated. And and there there's a great deal of money being made 
um, tempting us into isolation. I just know it's not healthy for my psyche. I'm just interested. Do you deny Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the whole belongingness thing? Do you just take that little layer out of there or what, Tim? No, I just I think that the concept of belonging needs to be understood with with more subtlety. And that is there are different kinds of belonging. There's the kind of person who says, I define my life based on what other people think of me or what other people think about the world in general, or how I fit in with other people, or how much good I do for other people, or how much harm I do to other people. And then on the other hand, there's the kind of person who says, I'm a, I'm a human being and I have dreams and hopes and desires and longings and, and uh, talents and skills, and I live my life, and other people who appreciate my values or whose values I appreciate, come, we come together on mutually acceptable terms, and that's friendship. And the problem is that a lot of these discussions of belonging blur those two things and often in a dangerous way that suggests that that you should draw meaning from from other people. And I, I very much disagree with that. Well, it's interesting. It depends on how you slice that, because like if I look at my own life at my current age, the two and I was uh, I'm 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 uh, well, I don't know. Joe could probably describe me better than I can, but I am uh, I have been a loner my whole life. But the two most gratifying things I've done in my life are raise kids as part of a family right and this show because it's part of a team none of the stuff i did completely by myself really has left that much of a mark for yeah, me and i and i have a similar experience i mean I, I a fiercely individualist though i am i work for a nonprofit that represents people for free in court because i believe in the cause that we're doing and i i enjoy getting to know the people that i work with and i feel a sense of teamship with with people also but I think the real difference is that I don't see myself as valuable in terms of my belonging to the team. Instead, I see the team as valuable insofar as it is a part of a well-balanced, well-considered life. You know, one of the uh, highlights, literally, I highlighted it in the book, was um, uh, he's quoting uh, oh, a doctor at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City who is talking about PTSD, among other things, but says, if you want to make a society work, then you don't keep underscoring the places where you're different. You underscore your shared humanity. I'm appalled by how much people focus on differences. Why are you focusing on how different you are from one another and not on the things that unite us? Um, I, I think that's absolutely true. I see it in the tribal politics of the day and in the sub-sub-subcategories of, of race and ethnicity and sex and the rest of it and how we're all supposed to... Um, run together in uh, a herd based on that subdivision. At the same time, though, I'm thinking about Kurt Vonnegut in one of my favorite books of all time, uh, Cat's Cradle, in which he talks about a lot of these associations we have are really kind of fake. They're imposed on us, and if we thought about them, right. uh, we'd realize they're you know they're not real. They they j- exist in the ether. But but then I think you know unless you're truly self delusional. If you feel like part of a group and you love and are loved, uh, what the hell's the difference? I mean, I, 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 I go back and forth between kind of extremes about cynicism, about like, for instance, yesterday I was wearing a, a, a University of Illinois fighting Illini fleece. And I was a big sports fan. I went there, I went to the games and I, I still wear the swag and stuff like that. But then I went back with my daughter to take a look at the college to see if she wanted to get there. And because Illinois is going broke, thanks to the Democratic leadership in that state, the university has gotten crappy. I mean, it's just not impressive. Yeah. The programs aren't good. The, the, the tour was shoddy. And, and I think, why, why am I still proud of being in that tribe? It's just silly. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I had underlined the same passage in the book myself, and I wrote next to it, because differences are what freedom is about. 
Now, I think you can have both views, and that is it, it, it question, the question is what kind of differences are you talking about? If we're talking about a shared humanity, absolutely that's an important message, an important thing to always keep in mind. If we're talking about individual differences, like this person is special because this person is a great artist or a great scientist or something, that's great. But if we're saying, well, I I'm belong to the the big enders and you belong to the little enders and and that well that sort of difference is ridiculous because it's not a real not a real difference as you said and and you know speaking of you you mentioned your a novel you like that came to mind I had written down a couple times a no, one of my very favorite novels my very favorite science fiction writer probably my very favorite writer of all time a guy named John Varley he wrote a novel his very best novel is called Steel Beach. And the whole, the main character, this is set in, you know, science fiction future. Main character is a person who keeps killing herself over and over again. And the, the mystery is why does she keep finding herself alive again afterwards? And gradually the point. <laughs> Comedy? A lot yeah, of laughs there. <laughs> yeah, really. The, the, gradually the, the plot unravels that it turns out that what's going on is this, the whole culture is suffering from a sense of depression because they have no goals. And the steel beach referred to in the title is that, is that they've washed on shore on this future where they don't have any plans or anything to work together for or to try and promote. And so they, they feel life is senseless. And what's the point? And the, the climax of the story, of course, is they come together to come up with a plan to travel to the stars. Well, that came to mind repeatedly before this exactly that reason. People do need a sense of purpose. They need to have a sense that they've got a project that's worth devoting themselves to. And that does give them a sense of self-esteem, I think. Two, two things I want to point out real quick here, because I, I, there's one elephant in the room that we have to mention, and that's that as, as the four of us sit here and talk about how much we like to be alone versus how much we like to be in a group setting, I mean, I, it, it dawns upon me that we've got four loners who really like individualism on this on this discussion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think, I think maybe what you're seeing is that Tim is the furthest one toward that extreme, and Joe might be the furthest one toward the middle of the room. Uh, that's one observation. The second thing is, don't you guys think that part of the reason our politics have become so tribalistically poisoned is because we do not have enough community and tribalism in our lives anymore. Well, shared purpose, maybe. I I don't think, you know, the survival of the nation is a pretty good purpose that we've shared at a lot of points. Yeah, but we're, we're now, we have less of that community feeling in many ways with the social media world. And so now we're, it's almost like a, a lot of us, because we do, a, a lot of people do have that need for tribe. We're, we're, we're using political party as a surrogate for what we should have as oh, yeah. face-to-face real. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. No, I feel that, uh, <laughs> put in a word here for, uh, for the religious side of this, you know, as you, as you guys know, I'm not religious myself. But one thing that the non-religious community has never been able to really come up with is a solution for this on their side for what people get from going to church every Sunday, that sense of, of community and fellowship and knowing your other people and caring about other people and, and feeling that you're valued. And our side has really not come up with that. So as society becomes increasingly secularized, people look for some substitute for that. And I think they find it primarily in terms of politics, but also in, in this sort of culture version of politics that we have going on right now, where as you pointed out the other day, there's there's a, now a bill pending in the legislature to make it illegal to put boys' toys and girls' toys in different aisles in toy stores. Oh, yeah, we've hey, been hammering the hell out of that I'm, one. The, that sort of culturized politics, I think, is, is for a lot of people a substitute for religion in their lives. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we could go on and on about progressivism as a 
uh, you know, religion substitute, but yeah. uh, perhaps another day. I, I would just say in general, you you will, if you feel at all dislocated and lonely in a crowd, um, I think you will find this book interesting. And and frankly, I, honestly, I, I think you'd have to be a halfwit to to read this book and want to run off and join the Indians. I think most people will. <laughs> was that your concern? Most people. Well, it sounded like that was Tim's concern. I think most people will take from it. Elizabeth won't have me. <laughs> most people will take from it what they need and kind of put aside the rest. You know, one, one thing that I personally was reminded of in rereading it was uh, it was like uh, the vitamins I'm not getting in my diet relating to other human beings. Um, this uh, and and realizing something about myself and deciding that I want to um, there are things I want to do outside the radio show that I haven't been doing and I'm missing those vitamins in my diet and that's you know specifically doing something of purpose for people who need it um, and, and, and or doing getting out there and doing a project right. you know of any sort I I went through a period I I had what I don't know this was right after I got out of college I went through a period where I had a an experience that I would call PTSD of a sort it was nothing even nowhere near approaching something a soldier had gone through but it was a severely depressed period of my life and I I brought got, on by what uh, an incident that occurred in okay. college okay. and okay. and after that I, in fact there was a, a point where I contemplated suicide and. I found that what helped build me out of that was forcing myself to go do something. I remember very one particular moment when I said, I am going to go to this museum downtown and see their, what I don't care what they've got. I'm going to go see this exhibit. So I went down there and, and went to this museum, and it felt so good driving home that day just because I had done something. Wow, that's interesting. And building slowly from there to have one project or another that you care about, and then you know eventually law school came along, and my career came along, and my marriage came along, and things, and it, it built on itself that I I feel like I have a life that has purpose and meaning. But yeah, there are times in your life when all that stuff can get stripped away, and then you look around and you think, why do I even bother existing at all? And the first step sometimes has to be to force yourself to do something first, and look for the reasons later. That's so powerful. And it's, it's, it's really important, and it doesn't even have to be as big as driving down to a museum. I mean, when some people get, when they get to that level, it can be just get up, make my bed, and brush my teeth today. Absolutely true. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And that's why, Moving you forward. know, people sometimes, I think sometimes people think that talk about the rising suicide rate or the opioid crisis and stuff. You know, I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that because I don't know what these particular people are going through. But the bottom line fact is... Make yourself call for help if you need it and take the step, no matter how minute or silly it might seem to you, to do something so that by when you go to bed that night, you can say, at least I did such and such. And then the next day, do a little bit more and do a little bit more. And I just want to underscore what Joe just said in relation to this, because I think it's it's one of the most powerful things I've taken from the Armstrong and Getty show. And that's that social media and the modern world has enabled us to pretend we have real connections with people through FaceTime and, and texting and, and posts. And that makes it, we're not getting the nutrition we need to feed our souls. And we're, those of us that are more, have the a proclivity. The analogy to junk food is so good. Exactly. And you guys have done it. <laughs> yep. And it's, I just think it's, 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 it's perfect. It's a perfect analogy for what's going on. So those of us that have a proclivity to want to stay alone and isolate ourselves, 
can find that, geez, now it's been six days since I've been with other people, and I feel pretty bad. I need to get out and but do I, something. But I got enough junk food to, to, to survive. To get me through, and I'm just, just making it like worse. Crap. Yeah, I'm just making it worse underneath the surface. Yeah, not to stroke Joe and Jack's egos any more than necessary, but uh, I totally agree that one of the reasons why I think the show really succeeds so well is because it's not constantly ranting about politics. But you stop and take a step back and talk about your families or something funny you saw the other day or some book you're reading that you enjoy or something like that. Because in today's world, it is very easy to get stuck on that constant 24-hour drip of news and outrage. And that's your identity instead of saying, no, there's something deeper and more long-term here. Well, and after you've observed it for a while and you have a couple of brain cells to rub together, you realize so much of it's stupid anyway. I mean, it's just, it is purely tribalism you're shouting gobbledygook at each yeah. other just of a slightly different accent but yeah. anyway uh tribe by sebastian younger best thing you'll ever read or a horror against humanity <laughs> <laughs> for, for only the pro-war pro-tornado crowd <laughs> exactly more tornadoes now <laughs> Now, as far as our next book, you know, it's Jack's turn to pick one. And I'm really kind of scared of this because I know he reads these enormous tomes. Yeah. It's got to be probably... a Bernie Sanders biography. Oh, I... Please. <laughs> Please, a Bernie biography. Seven volumes on the life of Lyndon Johnson or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I've put some thought into that. I'll come up with something. Can I just end with my favorite quote in the book? Sure. Um, it was it was in a portion of the book where they were summarizing studies that had been done in the early 2000s on people and mental health and, and, and the feeling of belongingness. And it was... Summarizing a study from the Journal of Affective Disorders in 2012, where they had looked at a bunch of other studies, and it just said, in effect, humans have dragged a body with a long hominid history into an, into an overfed, malnourished, sedentary, sun-deficient, sleep-deprived, and socially isolating environment with dire consequences. Yeah, I love that stuff. Absolutely. The, the, the stuff that we, we just, change has, had, has happened too fast for evolution to keep up with. I just love that stuff. Maybe it'll be a book about that. I'm sorry, Wait, sure, so I should join the Indians? <laughs> <laughs> or root well, for a calamity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. The, the fry bread might be a problem for your evolutionarily uh, underdeveloped body. But uh, yeah. no, it's absolutely true. That's the cause of things like... like uh, our obesity problem and stuff is we are too fat and happy for our own good in many respects. Uh, I agree. Speaking for myself. Thanks, guys. Always stimulating. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Extra large. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.